You're listening to a podcast from Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, whose mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Oh God, we are in awe of you this morning, for you far surpass anything we can imagine or comprehend. For you are infinite without equal in your majesty, in your creativity, in your power, in your holiness, and in your love. You lack for nothing, and yet before the foundation of the world, chose to create mankind. You chose to create him in your image, knowing full well that humanity would rebel and sin against you. And as your word says, even our best efforts fall far short in your eyes and are filthy and repugnant. But you had a plan, and that plan is still unfolding today. Father, may we be amazed and humbled this morning by the reality that you and your infinite grace and mercy chose to send Jesus to live as one of us, who being God could live without sin but who would take the sin of all mankind. All deserve in order that a relationship between a holy God and mankind could be restored. And in grace, God, you have adopted us as joint heirs with Jesus and lavishly give us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it is kept in heaven for us. Thank you for the cross and the wonderful provision it affords us this morning as your beloved children to be holy in your sight. Father, we approach you this morning in the name of Jesus, for he has given us that righteousness that is necessary for us to confidently enter into your presence. Father, you know each of our needs. You know the daily bread we require You know whether we need healing or finances or restored relationships or wisdom. You know all of that. And I ask in the name of Jesus that you provide from your bounty that you may be glorified and your kingdom will come and your will be done through our lives. Father, this morning, I'm reminded you have given Red Sea and the rest of the church in the United States so much in Jesus, all of which is undeserved, and yet we have been so reluctant to extend mercy, forgiveness, and grace to others, whether our brothers or sisters in Christ or those who don't know you yet. Forgive us, for this is sin and dishonors your great name. Instead, Holy Spirit, always bring to our remembrance that the measure in which we use is the measure that will be used toward us. Remind us that you have given us everything necessary to emulate Jesus so we can lavish mercy, forgiveness, and grace on others that your name will be praised. And may the love that we show to others through acts of compassion and kindness be used by you to allow others to see your great love for them and to turn to Jesus for forgiveness, acceptance, security, and significance, replacing the overwhelming weight of the guilt and shame of sin and the brokenness of this world with a living hope in Jesus. And lastly, Father, we rejoice that you are the author and finisher of our faith. Now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present Red Sea blameless before the presence of his glory with with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you, Doug. Well, good morning. Uh, 
My name is Chris. I'm uh, one of the elders here at Red Sea, and I'm going to be walking us through uh, the service this morning. And I uh, just want to start by saying Happy Easter uh, to all y'all out there. Um, and got a little echo going on. Uh, but being that it is Easter, uh, I know that a lot of times uh, we get some new faces here, and sometimes the, you, you kind of hear the same message on Easter. It's got the same sort of theme, that sort of thing. Uh, well, today we, we're just continuing on in a series that we've been doing, walking through the book of First Peter. And First Peter, it's a, it's a small little book in the New Testament. It's only like five chapters, but there's dense. There's a lot in there. So as, I was, as we've been prepping and walking through, I've been using this book um, to kind of prep and use as a commentary and, and resource and stuff like that. And this is just on the book of First Peter. So five chapters in the Bible gives you 300 pages of commentary on that. So there's some, there's some thick stuff in there. It's, it's deep. And then it's, it's not just like 500 or 300 easy pages. It's, it's intense stuff in there. And so I think that we need to remember that just because it's a short little book doesn't mean that there's not, not a lot in there that we can glean and that we can we can learn from it. So uh, kind of that is the preface. And then uh, the book of First Peter, kind of give you a little recap if you haven't been here for a while or if, or if you're new and you're just visiting. We've been walking through this book, and the, the author of the book is, is thought to be Peter, and Peter was one of the apostles. He was one of the disciples, the people that, that walked with Jesus. Um, he was the one that confessed Jesus as the Christ, but then also he was the one who denied Jesus three times during the whole process of being in the garden and then being nailed to the, like before the Sanhedrin and beaten up, Jesus being beaten up, and then he gets nailed to the cross. And, and Peter's the one that, he wrote this book, but he's the one that denied him, cut tail and ran because he was, he was ashamed. He didn't want to face the suffering and the persecution of professing faith in Christ. And so that's kind of the backdrop of who the author is. And he's writing this book to a, a, a displaced group of, of Christians in the area of Asia, Asia Minor, so it's like the rim around the Mediterranean Sea there. And so he's writing to this group of Christians who are displaced. They're a minority among uh, a majority population. And so within that, they're experiencing some, some persecution and some suffering for what they believe. And, and who better to talk about that than, than Peter? So he, he knew what that was going to be about. He, he was afraid of it, but then he also was the one that, that Jesus, when he came back, said, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And so that's who, that's who Peter is. And so as where we've been here in the book of First Peter is that he's been telling these, these people and he's been encouraging them of, of who they are, that they've been giving this new identity because of who Jesus is and what he's done, that, that they're, they're in, even though they're, they're in the midst of suffering for what they believe, they have a hope. And then the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how that plays into specific roles. So two weeks ago, we talked about that dynamic between a slave and a master and what that looks like. Last week, we talked about the nice hot-button topic of wives and husbands and submission and, and caring for one another and carrying those burdens. And then now he's coming back and he's going to transition into addressing the whole group again. And so as we get into this, I think that um, it seems a little disjointed. There's three kind of subsections within this, this plot, but I think there's a theme here. He's building on the fact that um, returning to the identity and character as a community in Christ. And he's saying, do not fear pain or suffering because of what you believe, but count it all joy that we stand upon the victorious name of Jesus. So that's kind of the theme for this little section here. And so uh, what we're going to do is we're not going to, it's a longer chunk of scripture, so we're not going to read it all together at once, but we're going to read a little section, talk about it, read a little section, talk about it. And so the first section is going to be, um, we're in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, verses 8 through 12. And it's going to be on the screen here as we read through it. It says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So the transition here, the, he's saying, finally, all of you. He's bringing it back to the community, to, to the, the whole group of the Christians in Asia Minor, that even though they're dispersed, you are a united people. And he's bringing it back to that corporate identity of Christians, and he lists off some specific traits 
the traits that are supposed to be characteristic of a Christian community and of those who believe in Jesus. Uh, a community that is supposed to provide support and refuge for one another, encouragement when we're feeling discouraged and feeling, feeling um, beaten down or unsure about things. And so these common character traits are for building up community and reinforcing cohesion. First, he, one of the first ones he talks about is brotherly love. I think that we can kind of glaze over that pretty quickly. Yeah, I know about love. You know, there's the city of brotherly love in Philadelphia and all that sort of stuff. But, but what he's talking about here, and he's trying to reference them, brotherly love. It's very important that he uses the, the preface word of brotherly before saying love. What he's saying is, you're a family. You have a kinship relationship and connection with one another because of who you are in Christ. So treat each other that way. Treat each other as family. You're not separate individual entities. You are a unit. Live that way. Have a familial compassion towards one another. Then he goes on to say, uh, like-mindedness. What's their like-mindedness that they have? That they are unified because of their belief in Jesus Christ. That is the rallying point for those who are believers and those who profess this faith of Christianity. It's, It's we're unified upon the name of Jesus and what he has done. So we're supposed to, with that, embrace the teaching of Scripture. You're supposed to understand and know what it is that you're professing to believe, that you're, you're spending time in, in this Word, and you, you know what it says and who it's talking about and the character traits and those things. And then it says to have a tender heart. Uh, a good uh, synonym for this would be compassion. And I know that that can create maybe a little bit of confusion with the way that we use the word compassion. Um, the first century understanding of the word compassion was to show uh, kindness to family members. Whereas now, what we think of compassion, I know um, a lot of you here wouldn't understand, we, we take part in Red Sea, this thing called Compassion North Portland, Compassion Connect North, North Portland, and the idea of that is to serve the, uh, the low income or the homeless in the community that don't have access to things like dental care or health care or basic, basic needs, and so we're showing compassion to them by doing that. And that's the idea of that compassion is meant for those that are less fortunate or that they're victims or that they don't have a need. But the tense that he's using it in here is that, no, you love one another as family, treat one another as family, have a compassionate heart towards one another as family. And so I think we need to wrap our heads around what that means there, that there's a difference than how we think about it in our modern American culture of what compassion is. And then he's saying to have humility. Now, humility, uh, especially in this time, is a distinctly Christian characteristic, especially within the Greco-Roman society where it's very much about power and authority and dominance. You know, you think of gladiators, there's no humility in that sort of system. Um, And in that system of Greco-Roman culture, humility was thought of as weakness and shame. And so what he's saying is, um, have this identity of humility, not thinking of yourself first, thinking of others and putting on this identity, this group identity that you have in Christ. And so that's, that's going to be different than what, what is thought of in society. And so he's building up this understanding of a familial community bond as a, a, a family of Christians. And so that this is going to change the way that you interact with one another. You're not going to be able to just do a silo sort of thing where you show up on one day and then walk off... Families don't do that. Families spend time together. Families invest. Families know one another and what's going on in their lives, and they can speak with one another about those things. And then he's describing this this broader purpose of what this new family and community is. What is the overall intention of a Christian community? And as a Christian, it's to glorify God, okay? And so he's saying, you have come together as a purpose. You're unified and rallied upon this name of Jesus, and your purpose is to glorify him with your actions, with your words, and the way that you live your life. Now, this in that time, and I think even in our day today, is, little, is countercultural. You know, by and large, we are built upon the, the fact of my needs and individualism, and I'm independent, and I'm going to do it my way, and those sorts of things. And so we, we try and stand upon this idea of what's best for me as a per individual is what I'm going to do. And if you don't agree with me as an individual, then I'm going to try and conform you to my individual preferences. And what he's saying here is, you are a family in Christ pointing towards one common goal, and that's what you rally upon, okay? And so, and then he's, he, he, he drifts from that into verse 9, where he's talking about evil and evil and reviling and reviling and blessing and, and all that. And so they are in this situation where they are living very counterculturally. And when you live counterculturally in that way, that you will face hostility. 
And so they're, they're experiencing hostile relationships with those who do not believe and do not profess. And so they're receiving insults and defamation of character and vulnerable abuse, um, things that I don't think any of us would enjoy experiencing, you know? And those are all typical wep- weapons or uses of an agnostic honor-shame society and an honor-shame culture. What they're trying to do is to shame this group of Christians into conforming to the majority perspective and idea of the uh, Greco-Roman society. And so, but what he says after that is, but on the contrary, don't do that. Bless, for to this you have been called. So he's saying, hey, don't respond in a way that they're going to expect. You know, don't, if they're being mean to you, don't just be mean back to them. If they're honking their horn at you down the road, don't just honk your horn back at them. You know, have a, a response of blessing. And I think we need to understand what, what bless means. It's not, you know, the, the popular social media tag, hashtag blessed, hashtag have a blessed day. No, he's saying um, in, the, in the Greek, it means to publicly speak well of. Okay, so somebody who's being mean to you or doing evil or that sort of thing, don't be mean to them back. Publicly speak well of them. That's in the Greek context. And then in the Jewish and Christian context, even deeper and even more profound, it's saying, invoke the blessing of God upon them. How contradictory, like how countercultural and how different is that? Like somebody's being a jerk to you and you are like invoking the blessing of God upon them? And just kind of to wrap our head around what that might mean, it's, it's having this perspective and in, in, um, disposition towards another person and attitude such that you can intentionally and from your heart pray for them in such a way that they would experience blessing and honor and, and drawing close to God. You can't do that if the intention of your heart is that they would be experiencing evil or punishment or reviling, okay? So out of the goodness of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so he's calling you to, hey, have this proper attitude when you're interacting with them, that they would be blessed, that you could bless them. That's a, a drastically different reaction than they would have expect, expected. And it could, throw, it could be staggering. It could throw them off. And so that kind of made me think about um, marriage. Uh, marriage is like the, the microcosm of community, you know? Um, I, I think it transfers to relationships as well in any other vein, but a microcosm of of relationships within marriage of there's conflict. You know, we often think husbands and wives, kids, I'm right, you're wrong, you need to do what I want to do. And um, what, what Ann and I have tried to do, my wife, is we've tried to be very intentional about the fact of not trying to stay mad at one another, okay? And a big part of the way that we have tried to do that is to be intentionally prayerful for one another, when we're in those times of conflict or whatever. So we might be having a discussion or an argument or we might disagree and I think I'm right and she thinks she's right and so <laughs> she's usually the one that does it by and large and she'll like, well, I'm just going to pray for you about that <laughs> and we'll see what happens. And so it's this, it's this idea and understanding of that um, laying aside her perspective in a way and she's um, submitting to me as, as the leader of the house, but she's also saying, hey, this isn't in my hands, this is in God's hands, and I love you, and I care for you, and I want the best for you and for our family, so I'm going to pray that God would change your heart, but also in the process of her praying for God to change my heart, God's going to work on her heart too. So this isn't just a one-way street here where God's saying, pray favor and blessing of God's favor upon these people. It's not just um, that they would confirm to your way, no, it's that you would also be changed in that process to love this person that is treating you poorly and horribly, okay? And so that's the kind of interaction that he's calling them to. And so um, he's saying to act rightly towards your adversaries, okay? Regardless of your emotional connection or feelings or disposition towards them, don't be a jerk, okay? You can lovingly respond to somebody even if you disagree with them, Okay? So he's, he's calling them to break this downward spiral of tit for tat, of like, you're mean to me, so I'm going to be mean to you. You cut me off, so I'm going to cut you off. You, um, you stole my thing, so I'm going to steal your thing. He's saying break that cycle. And how like, amazing of a witness would that be to then uh, bless in response and to re- return blessing. And so we're called to return a blessing because we have received the most amazing blessing because of Jesus. Okay? That's our example. Um, 
and that your behavior is also indicative of what you, you believe and your identity and what you're founded in. As I was doing some, some prep work for this, uh, an example was used in this book, and I thought that it was a, a great example. So the example, um, the person who wrote this book is a teacher as well, and he asked, they asked their class um, what, what they thought of And One of the examples that was brought up was about a soldier. So there's this soldier in the barracks, and the way that the stories are described, I assume it's a dormitory-style barracks where there's just cots and bunk beds all in one big room, you know? And there's this Christian soldier, and he's just laying on his bed reading his Bible. Okay? He's, he's not trying to publicly say anything or confront anybody or anything like that. He's just sitting on his bed reading his Bible. And as he's doing that, a dirty boot flies at him through the air, and he has to duck to get out of the way, Okay? persecution, evil. Somebody's physically trying to hurt him because he's reading his Bible. Well, the reaction that this person had, he didn't get all upset, pick up the boot, throw it back or anything like that. He kept reading. He stayed there. The next morning, that person who threw the boot at him woke up to his dirty boots, cleaned, shined, and in perfect order at the foot of his bed, returning blessing in the face of evil and persecution. Okay? Think about that. Like how, but even if it didn't change that person's heart that threw the boots at him, what sort of a witness is that to those around him? Okay? He's in a, in a big room in the military with all these other soldiers sitting in their cots and in their bunk beds. Maybe that one guy didn't change, but everybody else, he's like, hey, we know that this guy's a Christian because of the way he lives and he's reading his Bible and these sorts of things. And he's not re- reacting the way that I would have reacted. I would have been pissed. You know, especially as soldiers, soldiers have this, this identity and this perspective of like supercharged masculinity. You're not going to shame me. I'm going to stand up and puff my chest and, and all those sorts of things. But no, he has that uh, perspective of humility, cleans the dude's boots and puts them back. Okay? He's having these actions that are, are backing up what he's professing to believe. And so. And then he goes on in verses 10 through 12, and he quotes uh, Psalm 34 here. In Psalm 34, the specific section that he quotes is verses 12 through 16 that are an ex- uh, psalms written by David, this one specifically, and it's an expression of thanksgiving for God's protection and care for those who trust in him. And so the, the section specifically that he's quoting here is a, is a wisdom portion of the psalm where he's, it's a summary of right living that Christians are called to and right character traits that they're called to. And it's exalting a reverent fear and honor perspective of the Lord uh, and that you're trusting in his care. And so what he's saying is have holy living that is distinguishable from those around you, that's distinguishable from the culture, that's distinguishable from uh, those that you live with and those that you live amongst. And so he's not just saying that, he specifically addresses here. He says, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And he goes on and says, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him speak peace, seek peace and pursue it. So he's talking about the duality there. He's, not, he's saying, don't just talk the talk in front of all these people. Don't just use it with your words, but have your actions back up what you profess to believe. Okay? Our actions, Royce talked about it last word, your actions speak volumes, volumes above even what your words do. You know, the, the, the idea a picture is worth a thousand words. There's not really any words in pictures, okay? But it's something you can see and you can visualize and you can take in, okay? And so he's saying to have a character that is transformed, a character that is defined upon this unity that you have. And what he's saying is pursue Jesus, okay? That is what you're striving after. You're not supposed to be striving after tit for tat or doing this other thing. Your character is supposed to be defined upon the one that you profess to believe in. And then there's this little kicker at the end. Um, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We don't really like that, do we? <laughs> Makes it a little uncomfortable. What he's saying here is that God is always against evil and those who do evil, regardless of if you're a Christian and profess this faith or not. He's not giving partiality or favoritism here. And so with a couple questions within that, I would say, do you feel an absence of God's presence in your life? If that is true, how have you been interacting with others? How have you responded when somebody else treats you poorly or shows you evil or reviling? Is your response to bless? Or is your response to show evil in return? Perhaps there is some repentance that needs to take place in your heart. 
Now, repentance, I know, is a churchy word. Repentance means to confess what you have done wrong to God and possibly to this other person, depending on the situation, and to turn away from that behavior and that action. Okay? So the section was talking about character traits and what it looks like to be part of this community and this family and this identity that you have, have been brought into and that you're called to. And then he goes into this section, which I think is a good summary of it, saying, do not fear, don't be afraid. So um, section, this next section is verses 13 through 17, and we're going to read it aloud here, where it says, in response to all that, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, suffer it. When you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So what he's saying here is that don't fear persecution. He's saying uh, no true harm can really come to you. Okay, what's the worst thing that could happen in an event of persecution? Die, death, okay? That's the worst thing that could happen to you. Well, I think that uh, Paul says it greatly in Philippians. It's, it's Philippians 121 where he says, to live is Christ." and to die is gain. What he's saying is, the worst thing that they could do to you if you're a Christian and you have this hope is they could kill you. But you know what? That means you're going to be with Jesus, okay? <laughs> and um, my wife and I were talking a while, it's probably a while ago, and we were having this conversation at the table. I don't even know where it came out of, but she's like, I think I might be a little sad when, um, when we die but not really. <laughs> so she's like having this perspective of like, I might be sad because that, especially I think she was referring to the fact if she dies first, because then you would be alone and you wouldn't have me there. But she's like, but I don't even know if I'll think about it because I'm just going to be in heaven with God. How much cooler is that going to be? Right? Like, so like at first that kind of like stung of like, oh, she doesn't want to be with me. But like, oh no, wait a minute. She has the eternal perspective in hand here. She's like, no, it's so much better to be with God in heaven then even this, you know, I love my wife and she loves me and we, you know, life's hard sometimes, but we work through it together and um, we care for each other, which is like, how much better to be there with Jesus than to, to even be here where I love you? So I, I think that speaks volumes of the, the, this hope and this, this faith that we have in there. And so, but then he goes on and says that um, suffering and mistreatment because of what you believe and because you're a faith, um, it's to be expected, Okay. Uh, when you're living in a way that is honoring to God and glorifying Him, and those around you are not, eventually they're going to be offended, okay? Eventually they're not going to be taken kindly to the way you're living or the way you're acting or the way that you're behaving. But don't be a fatalist, okay? Persecution for your faith and what you believe, it's going to be inevitable. At times it's going to happen, but it's not like lurking around every corner, you know, like waiting for you to come, jump out on you and grab you and wrestle you to the ground, okay? And so don't be a fatalist. Understand that suffering for righteousness' sake is what he's saying, for your faith in God and for your holy living and, and de devotion to him is a sign of God's favor and it's evidence of one's salvation. Okay, we don't really, we don't like to think about that, but we walked through, uh, I know it may have been a while ago because it was the first part of the book of Matthew, and we took about two years to get through the book of Matthew, but in the Beatitudes, it talks about in Matthew 5.10, where he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay? We need to remember that perspective. If we're living in such a way that glorifies and honors God, uh, there, there's going to be some hard times because we're choosing that. But don't be afraid, okay? Remain faithful to God. He is your sanctuary, okay? And then he goes on to say, be ready to give a defense for what you believe. So there's, there's some weightiness in there. You have, and it'll be able to give a defense for what you believe. You have to know what it is that you profess to believe, okay? So you have to understand what is in these, this, this Bible, these scriptures that point towards Jesus and tell about Jesus, tell about this one that came and why he came. Okay? 
So there's some responsibility and accountability to that. And what we believe is in this future hope, a living hope that we have because of Jesus and what he's done and what he accomplished. And then he's also going on and saying, you need to be able to communicate that plainly, okay? You need to be able to communicate it in such a way that those who may not understand or may not be a part of this culture, Christianity, that it would be understandable, that it would be meaningful, relatable, and that it could address some of the questions that they might have, you know? And that you do it in a loving and respectful and gentle way. Okay? How did Jesus do it? Pardon me. When he came to the, the woman at the well who had several husbands, did he stand there with a sign and beat her over the head with it? No, he had a loving and gentle conversation with her that called her into more. Okay? And so as part of that, we're supposed to not just be like get caught up in the, the Christianese culture of like, well, do you know what this Bible word means? And do you know what that Bible word means? That, that's not going to help somebody who doesn't even read their Bible or doesn't go to church. If you're using these fancy words because you understand them and you want to look good, that's not going to help. So we, uh, I'm doing this training that, that Royce uh, leads at CB uh, for those that are being built up to, to be elders and pastors and serve in the church. And it's this technique that we learned about that's called the Feynman technique. Now, uh, Dr. Feynman was a theoretical physicist, uh, high-level stuff. How many in here understand theoretical phys- physics? Not many? Oh, Josh, yeah? All right. <laughs> it's, it's complicated stuff. Well, he got popular for this technique called the Feynman technique, where he uh, knew these high-level ideas and principles and all that, but he could break it down in such a way that somebody who had no background in theoretical physics could understand what he's saying. And so this perspective of if you aren't able to understand it, if you can't understand it enough to convey it to somebody in plain language, like you're talking to a fourth grader, then maybe you don't really understand it, okay? So think about your faith, the things that you profess to believe, these, these, these grand ideas and, and things that we talk about. Could you explain it to a fourth grader? What do you think? If not, maybe you don't understand it as well as you think you do. So, understand what it is you believe. Be able to talk about it with people. Be able to relate it, okay? But part of being able to relate it to people is that you're living openly among them, okay? You can't relate it to people who don't believe or don't understand or don't know if you're in isolation, okay? You have to be in community, not just community here, but community with your, your neighborhood and your, your coworkers and your extended family, and and all those things, to be able to have these opportunities to have conversations. Then he goes on to talk about living with integrity. So have your actions support your words. So don't live in such a way that is contrary to the faith that you proclaim. I think that there's a a section in Romans that gets at the heart of this, and in in the book of Romans, when he starts, it's in chapter 2, he's talking to the this group of people, and he's specifically addressing here the Pharisees, who were very much about legalism and the law, and do it this way, do it that way. And the quote is from section, uh, from Romans 2, 21 through 22, where he says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? So what he's saying here is, listen up. Your witness is more than your words. It's your actions, too. If you are professing one thing and then go right around and do the other thing when nobody's looking, do you really believe it? Is that transforming your heart? Is that transforming your life? And I know there's the reality of this, of, uh, you know, the churchy word, sanctification that we're being brought through from this uh, this life of where we are tempted and we do wrestle with these things and we're being made more and more and more into the image of Christ, but there's also an, a, an intentional struggle within that. We are to struggle with it. And I know a lot of times when we think of the word struggle, that means like, yeah, I'm just getting beat down by it. But sh- to struggle is to wrestle with something. It's to fight against it. It's to try and to um, put that thing out and so that you can go on somewhere else. So what he's saying is, is have your actions in your life live in such a way that is evident of this faith that you profess. And so we're supposed to do that because if any offense is supposed to be taken at the gospel, which, if you think about it at its core, can be pretty offensive, 
It's to the content of the gospel, not the way that we communicate it or the actions that we live when we profess to communicate it. And then he goes on and he finishes uh, with another nice little kicker here. Verse 17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing well. (laughs) It's a nice qualifier. If that should be God's will. (laughs) Um, So he's saying that it's better to suffer now for living in such a way that is pursuing God and righteousness sake and growing community with him than it is to suffer at the end, at the day of judgment, and live in eternal separation from God. There was a quote as I was studying here that I thought put a, put a good spin on it. It's, it's from J.H. Eliot, and I'm going to read it. It says, The qualification, if this should be God's will, refers to suffering for doing what is right, not simply suffering per se. The point is not that God wills suffering, but that God wills doing what is right, living in a way that honors and glorifies Him, rather than living in a way that doesn't and doing what's wrong, even if and when this results in suffering. So what he's talking about here is that God is looking for faithful living. He's looking for a pursuit of Him in a way that honors and glorifies Him with your life even if the response from culture or from those that don't profess the same thing results in suffering. It's a call to faithful obedience. And it's a call to see your faith for what it is, or maybe even what it isn't. And the next section that goes on, we'll read it here, is verse 18 through 22. Now, this this is probably going to be at the point where I'm supposed to get super emotional and be like, he's risen and, and all that sort of stuff, but... Uh, It it gets there, but it doesn't start out that way, okay? And so in verse 18 through 22, I'm going to go ahead and read it, and it says, following up all this, it's been building, this character that you have, don't fear, and, and why? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but, um, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him some heavy stuff. What's he talking about there? Victory. He's talking about some glorious victory. And it starts in a way that we don't see as victory. It starts with death. The righteous for the unrighteous died. Okay, so Christ can identify with our suffering, but not in the way a couple weeks ago we talked about in, in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 21, where it talked about if you are suffering, you can suffer rightly because Christ is our example, because he endured uh, unjust suffering. But what he's saying is that Christ is our example and our hope because he overcomes our suffering and gives us a glorious hope. Christ suffered in death. He died once for sins, the perfect and righteous God for the unrighteous. As Doug was kind of talking about in his congregational prayer, um, the, the filthiness of the actions that we have as people, okay? Uh, and Scripture talks about that even your, your best and just deeds uh, can be viewed as, as filthy rags by comparison. And so death was part of the suffering that he experienced. It was also a one-time occurrence. This is distinctly different. The, the whole system before Christ came was a sacrificial system where over and over and over again they would have to go and they would have to kill a ram or a bull or cut a bird in half. They couldn't afford a ram or a bull. All these things, so much blood over and over and over again that, could be, that would have to be spilt for the atonement of sin, and, but it wouldn't last. So they'd have to do it over and over and over and over again. Uh, Ann and I joke sometimes that maybe those priests, uh, they liked it because they got some good food <laughs> out of it, you know, because the, the sacrifice that happened, they would burn it up on the altar, and then that food would feed the Levites, uh, but I digress. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
some good barbecue. Uh, but there, there was a specific purpose to this reason that God died. He died to bring you to God, okay? Um, he physically died, paying the penalty of the weight of our unrighteousness and our sin. There's nothing that we could have ever done in order to pay that debt, that, uh, that shame that we were carrying because we were separated from God. And so his death was a means of, of settling that debt, and it was a unique and final sin offering. It's never going to happen again. Jesus is never going to die again for our sins, okay? And what he's doing is, is um, we need to understand also that it wasn't like this timid or um, like uncertainty that Jesus went to the cross of like, I really don't want to have to do this. I wish there was another way. No, Jesus was also fully God, okay? So he knew what was going to happen, and he willfully submitted to it and took place and took part in it, okay? He willfully submitted his life for ours. Um, and then in the next couple, couple of verses, 19 through 20, it gets a little, I'm not going to lie, a little funky here. It's talking about you know, spirits in prison and Noah and this sort of stuff. And there, uh, it's a little bit of a hotly debated uh, idea of what, what this is talking about. There's like three or four different perspectives on it and stuff like that. And as I was reading and, and studying, I think that the, the one that I would kind of land on that I think fits in line with the theme of First Peter and what he's talking about um, it goes with some background of the Jewish culture and, and the Jewish culture understanding of, uh, now this is going to be a little bit for some of you Bible nerds that want to nerd out later on it. Um, so he's talking about the Jewish culture that's in relation to Enoch. Enoch was the seventh generation from Adam, a direct descendant, from whom Noah was a grandson. And then it, it further, go, further goes on, if you want to look into later, this book called First Enoch um, that that outlines some of these things that happened, but the, uh, all of that to be said, it links this section to Genesis chapter 6, and it links it to Genesis chapter 6, that talking about the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So Genesis chapter 6 talks about that, and then what happens shortly after? The flood. There's some judgment. There's some uncomfortable judgment. <laughs> Everybody on the earth died. And this explains why. Because the wickedness of man's heart was great on the earth, and every intention was evil continually. And then it, and then it talks about these spirits in prison. Now, uh, the believed reference here in context of this is to like an evil or demonic sort of uh, entity. And so the Greek term specifically that is used here for spirit is, um, I, I don't know Greek, so I'm trying to say it, pneuma. And what it's referring to is a malevolent spiritual being. So it's referring to the spiritual being that is like constantly against God, so that you can think of it as like fallen angels who have just come to wreak havoc on the earth and to turn people away from God. And so, and then it goes on and it talks about Noah and the ark. And what Noah and the ark was is it was a judgment preview. It was a preview of what was going to come. And that happened pretty early in the process, you know. I mean, it's seventh generation's seven generations from Adam, the, the, first, the first person on earth, but that's not very long. That's like, you know, I don't know, seven, eight hundred years. And then God's like, you guys have really messed this up, you know? <laughs> I, I wish I hadn't created people. I want to wipe them off the face of the earth. <laughs> so it's a preview of what happens, but then he sees Noah and his family. Uh, so it's a, it's a preview that there is, there is going to be a final judgment that can, that can come, Okay. Oh. But it's also a proclamation of victory that Jesus has over that, over all evil, over sin and unrighteousness, and also in such a way that it's over evil spirits, okay? Physical and spiritual. So this, I hope that you find it's encouraging that Christ will stand in victory over all, over all evil, over all poor decisions, over all bad actions, over um, even the spiritual realm, Okay? And then it goes on and talks about a little bit the mode of the deliverance in 20 through 21. Noah and the flood reference, and they, he had made this reference because it was of cultural significance to the area of Asia Minor. Asia Minor has uh, like four different flood narratives that they understand and, and think about, and they think about Noah, and they understand that he was like this righteous um, preacher, this person who conveyed righteousness and righteous living. Um, 
But it also is, is communicating that um, salvation is a little bit of an exclusive gig. Uh, eight persons from the flood. Okay? Think about the population of the earth. Even if you're looking way back at that time. Okay? How many people are on the earth right now? Like billions? By comparison, eight people, eight people came from that. <clears throat> and so Noah and his family were delivered from that through water. They, they, they floated along the water in the ark. And they were able to be delivered through that. And then he makes this connection to baptism, that we receive deliverance and salvation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ as Christians. Okay? We have received a living hope of living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, as the book of 1 Peter starts, starts out talking about. Verse 3, that's what the living hope that we have in Jesus because of the resurrection. <clears throat> and then he goes on and talks about baptism, which corresponds to this, that now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's not referring to like a physical washing. This isn't like a bath that you go and take after you get dirty playing in the out in the mud. Like, my kids, uh, they love going out and playing in the dirt. And lately, Theo's just been, like, dumping it on his head, getting as dirty as he can. It's not like you just go in and take a bath and wash it all off and, and get, get all clean. Rather, what it's referring to is, like, the, the moral filth of pursuing, like, the carnal and fleshly desires, uh, the passions of the flesh. We talked about that a few weeks ago where uh, he was talking about the passions of the flesh, that you are no longer to walk in those. You're to walk in such a way that is honorable and glorifying to God. And so baptism is a response to this faith that you profess, an acknowledgement that you're going to live in a different way. It does not, like this get-out-of-free-jail-free card, it's not a free ticket to heaven that absolves you of any moral responsibility or any issues of morality. <clears throat> but it's a public pledge to live rightly with God. And within that, there's an element of loyalty and obedience, but also submission, okay? If Jesus is the king, if he's the one that has the victory, we're not. So that means we have to have loyalty to him. And then it ends in verse 22 saying, um, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected him. Christ doesn't just die and come back to life, which in and of itself would be pretty amazing, you know, and the many people that have died and come back to life, even in our modern medicine time. Um, no, he ascended into glory to be at the right hand of God. And in that glory, everything is under his dominion. Okay? All powers, all angels, all authorities are subjected to him. Christ is victorious. Right? Amen? He's victorious over all evil, even the most depraved. His victory even dealt with primordial evil of fallen angels in centuries past. What Jesus accomplished in rising from the dead and ascending into heaven is an eternal victory. Okay, he said it's a one-time thing. It's never going to change. It's for all of time. Nothing can undo it. And so if you're a Christian, how encouraging and hopeful is that? There's this victory that he accomplished. And it's by faith, those who believe and stand upon this grace and mercy that we were shown when Jesus did hang on that cross and paid the debt for us on Good Friday. You know, you don't think of death as good <laughs> a lot of the time, especially dying unjustly. <clears throat> But how good is that, that Jesus did that on our behalf and settled that debt? But not only did he do that, but then we are able to rise up with him in victory because he rose victorious and ascended with Jesus into heaven to be at God's right hand. And so he had a distinctly different debt, death for an intentionally specific purpose. It was a final defeat of the enemy of sin and death and a way to be reconciled to a just and perfect God. <clears throat> It was a voluntary death, a willful submission that Jesus had. Jesus was not treated as he deserved so that we might not be treated as we deserve, get the punishment that we rightfully are owed. <clears throat> but 
because of our faith in him, we would receive a blessing in eternity. <clears throat> and what we do receive is this new life and this new identity. And we get to stand upon this victory that comes with an internal inheritance because of what Jesus did. And so each week here, uh, we end by pointing to communion. And so it's a way of responding in repentance and faith uh, to Jesus. So and if you have done that, I would invite you to come and receive communion this morning in remembrance of the suffering that he experienced on our behalf, but also that he rose victoriously over sin, over death, and is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. And if you are a Christian, you are participating in that, okay? But then also, if, you, if, if, you're, if you're not a Christian, or if you're just checking this out, or if you're unsure, uh, maybe there are some things that, that you heard this morning that were a new perspective or uh, triggered some thoughts. I know this wasn't a typical Easter Sunday service. Um, I would invite you to, to talk about it with somebody who invited you, or uh, myself will be available, the other elders, Josh and Royce, would be available and love to be able to talk to you about that. And maybe you're thinking about what, what is the, what's the next step? What, what does this mean? Um, but we need to understand also that Christianity and, and this life of faith that we have through grace, it changes you. It doesn't allow you to live the same way you are. It calls you into more. Okay? And so with that, we want to invite you to have that conversation with us, to walk it out. You don't do it alone. We also do it in community. Okay? And so we'd love to have that conversation with you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for your word. I thank you for the victory of Jesus, that we who believe get to stand upon the victory of the cross and the victory of the risen Christ. How amazing and glorious that is. We thank you for that. We thank you for this morning and your word and the conversations that we were able to have and um, the building up and the conviction and the, uh, just that you are so good, God, for the gift that you gave us. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please visit us at www.redseachurch.org or contact us at info at redseachurch.org.